I want to thank the worship team. What a great job they did this morning leading us before the throne of grace. Can we just encourage them and thank them for their ministry? Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Ephesians chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at two primary verses, verses 8 and 9. Last week, we embarked on a three-week venture into answering the question, what is the message of the Bible? The Bible is this massive book collecting 66 other books. And basically what we are doing is seeking to understand what is the main point of the more than 750,000 words contained within these pages. We've already answered that question in a very general sense. The Bible is about life and death. But imagine, if you will, an archery-style target. You know the ones that I'm talking about. They are round, and they are made up of concentric circles. Usually the outer one is red, and then you have yellow, and then you have something blue or green in the center. And as you look at that bullseye, anywhere you hit, you are hitting the target. But the closer you get to the center is the closer you get to the objective. Last week, when we answered this question, we hit the target. We considered, in a very, very general way, the most outer circle of that target. What is the message of the Bible? It is life and death. And what we are going to do this week is we are going to zoom in, we are going to aim at a closer circle, a little bit tighter, and then next week we will go right to the heart of the bullseye. But for this week, we are going to consider that the Bible is about grace. That is our intention today. Let's bow our hearts humbly before the Lord and ask for His wisdom and guidance as we seek His word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that the fact that we are in this room is your grace. The fact that we are with one another, united in fellowship and a bond of unity, is your grace. We acknowledge that the fact that we have been redeemed and restored to union with Christ is grace. And Lord, we pray that in all of the things that we do this morning, we would be experiencing your grace. We need your grace to hear your word, and we need your grace to apply your word. So God, we pray that today, in everything that I say, that you would give me grace as the speaker, and that you would give the people here grace as the listeners, that we might be filled with the Spirit to hear and to apply your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The message of the Bible is grace. The entire Bible is about grace. However, some people would dispute what I am telling you right now. Some people would not agree with that statement, and they would say they disagree because they would argue that grace is a New Testament thing. They would argue that because the grace, the word grace, rarely ever occurs in the Old Testament, the Old Testament cannot be said to be all about grace. But I don't believe that's true at all. I believe that every single one of the Old Testament authors was writing the words that the Lord had given them for the purpose of pointing to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Peter's argument in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, he says, Think about your salvation, Christians. That salvation that you have experienced through grace has been foretold by all of the prophets going back to the first prophet that we have listed, Moses. Concerning this salvation, he says, this has been written. It is all about grace. 
Peter is saying that the very beating heart of the entire Old Testament is grace that will be experienced in salvation. So don't be mistaken. Although the word grace is not present on every page of your Bible, the point, according to the apostles, is that the Bible is a message of grace. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, follow along where it reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Recently I was discussing some of the war scenes in the Old Testament with one of my children. And I read it and I asked him, okay, what did the army just do? And his response was, they retreated. And I said, do you know what retreat means? And he says, no. So he knows they retreated, but he doesn't know what it means. The message of the Bible is grace, but one of the most important things that we could do right up front is define our terms. Because many people utilize this word with no idea what the Bible is actually trying to say. What is grace? Regardless of the context of the biblical word being used, grace always means unmerited favor or unearned favor. There are two categories of grace that exist in the Bible. There is common grace and there is saving grace. Common grace is the kind of grace that is experienced by all people everywhere. If you have food on your table, that is a kind of common grace. If you have money in the bank or breath in your lungs, it is owing to the common grace of God. And so whether you acknowledge that or not, he is the one upholding your life. He is the one keeping you in existence, as we learned last week. And just as Jesus said to a farming, agrarian society, God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In this instance, rain is a good thing. And he's saying God gives gifts to both just and unjust. That is common grace. But for our purposes today, we are going to set our attention on God's particular grace, which is called saving grace. And we're going to do this by breaking down four truths about grace that we find from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And then what we are going to do is pivot and systematically explore four types of saving grace that we see in the Bible. This is where having your own Bibles would be really helpful. So if you have your Bible with you, please have it open in front of you to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, because we are going to hit those verses over and over again. Let's begin by considering four truths about grace that we see in these two verses. Let's start with the absolute blatant, most obvious thing I will say all day. Grace saves us. For by grace you have been saved. Grace of God saves people. So when God saves a person, it is always by grace. There has never been a person who has ever been saved by any other means. So if you are a Christian, Paul is declaring to you in no uncertain terms, it is by unmerited favor that you have come into the kingdom. It is by grace you have been saved. The second truth that we see here is that grace is the opposite of works. Paul gives a gut punch to our pride when he announces that this is not your own doing. He says of your salvation, this is not 
your own doing. You did not cause this. You did not create this. You did not earn this. You did not produce this. The salvation that you experience is not the result of your works, Paul says. The difference between true Christianity and every single other religion that exists in the world is this. Every other system of belief relies on you earning your way through some kind of ethical code or religious practice to God. But God doesn't work that way. There is no amount of law-keeping that you could do in order to erase your sin record. It's impossible. Last January, uh, we did some major renovations on our house. I was just going to take out some closets. I did not realize that would mean I needed to take down all the ceilings, rip out all the floors, and redo all the electrical. I did not know that was going to happen when I broke a large hole into one of our closets. However, I'm thankful we did that work, and I am also grateful that I did only a portion of that work because so many of you came and assisted me in doing all of the things that I could not do on my own. There are many, many people who came and put hours and hours into making that house look beautiful, but I would like to highlight two of those people right now. Rocky helped me with the electric, and Cornell helped me putting up sheetrock on the ceiling. Now, Rocky helped me by coming over and he did a lot of the stuff, I don't even know what he was doing, it was a bunch of things with boxes in the walls and connecting pieces that I don't know what they are. And he was trying to explain these currents to me, but I was listening, not getting it. And as he was putting these things together, he did all of the hard work, and then he left after explaining to me how to do the little stuff, and I connected all of the lights myself over the next four hours by running the wire through the ceiling and connecting them to my new hi-hat. So he started it, I finished it. Cornell, on the other hand, he worked alongside of me, so we had all of the sheetrock, we would lift it up onto the ceiling, we both had a screw gun, and we would screw that thing into the ceiling and make it stay there and look beautiful. So Cornell and Rocky and everyone else who assisted me, thank you very much. That is not an example of grace. <laughs> they are not good examples of grace because in both of these scenarios, I did some of the work. I took part in the process. I was part of the cause of all of the effort that was done to make that house look nice. In Rocky's case, I was finishing a good work that he started. In Cornell's case, I was working alongside him to accomplish the task. And we're not going to take time to discuss all the religions out there, but I do want to hit close to home today because many people in the room have come out of the false religion of Roman Catholicism. Now, we all know many people who are still committed to that false system of belief. And there are many issues within the Roman Catholic Church, but the main problem is not the Pope, it's not the scandals, it's not the smells and bells, it's not anything else that takes place within their walls. The main problem at its very core of the Roman Catholic Church is that it is a works-based system of religion. They believe that you earn your way to God, just like every other religion in the world. Rocky did the hard part, and I did the rest. That is what Roman Catholics believe. Jesus did the hard part at the cross, but we also earn our way there through our baptism and confession and penance and good works and prayers to Mary and burning off all of whatever sin is left over in purgatory and many, many other things that are unlisted. That's not grace. That is works, and that is not the message of the Bible. It is a false gospel that cannot save you. 
But let's get even closer to home. Many Protestants who would reject that teaching somewhat agree in the sense that they would say they are more like Cornell's situation. They would say that salvation is brought about by God working and us working together, and they call that synergistic uh, salvation, meaning that just like a couple falling in love in a movie, he sees her, she sees him, sparks fly, they both agree they're in love. And all of a sudden, there is a salvation that takes place. God loves you, you love him, and it's love at first sight. That is the way some Protestant organizations teach about salvation. They would argue that everyone out there is searching for God. Everyone is looking for him, but they're just struggling to actually find him. And if we just point them in the right direction, those people would definitely believe. But that is also not what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3 blatantly teaches us no one seeks God. Paul hammers that home if you read through Romans chapter 3. He reiterates many, many Old Testament sayings, mostly from the book of Psalms, saying, none of you, no one does good, no one follows after God, every one of us has turned astray, but consider that one line over and over again. No one seeks for God, no, not one. That includes every one of you and everyone that you have ever attempted to evangelize. No one is seeking for God. That is why the seeker-sensitive movement does not work. It will only produce unhealthy churches filled with unsaved but comfortable people. R.C. Sproul once said, there is only one seeker in the entire Bible, and that's God himself. Your salvation was all of God. It was not a joint effort. It was God working in saving grace in your life. But the question is, how does he do that? That brings us to our third observation from our two verses this morning, that grace grants us faith. Again, we need to define our terms because the word faith is used by many people who have no idea what the Bible is actually attempting to say. Faith, simply defined, means that you trust an object. Faith is believing in an object. So, for example, the common example that everyone gives is that you are sitting in a chair. You are sitting in the chair because you believe that chair will hold your weight. And if you did not believe it, you would immediately stand up protecting yourself. But because you believe in the chair, you act upon those beliefs. Your belief produces actions in alignment with your expectations. Faith means that you can trust an object. In the Bible, faith is referencing our trust in a very specific object, which is the person of God himself. It means that we believe his promises. It means that we act according to what he says. Noah believed that there was a flood coming, so he built an ark. Or as Hebrews chapter 11 puts it, By faith, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Faith is necessary for salvation. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, and whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So faith is clearly a gift from God, and certainly it is necessary for salvation, but how do these two things relate to another? What is the relationship between grace and faith, and how do we get faith? Ephesians chapter 2 simply informs us that faith is a gift from God. When someone hears the gospel and they believe it, 
They believe because God has given them what he calls ears to hear. You are no doubt very familiar with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But do you know the very next verse? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 subtly drops the same line of thinking. It says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, of course, the point that he is making here is about suffering. His main argument is about suffering. But don't miss the fact that he just takes for granted that Christians believe that your faith was granted to you by God. The Christians in Philippi, he, accept, he believed, accepted the fact that their belief in God existed because God had granted it to them in the first place. Now, I love my kids, so I give my kids gifts. I like to give them gifts. I don't give them gifts because they have worked for them. If they have worked for them, they are not gifts. Like your boss saying, hey, I have a gift for you. Here's your paycheck. That is not a gift. I love my kids, so I give them gifts because I have affection for them. So let's connect the dots here. Grace is unmerited favor. And that favor is displayed by God giving you a gift. And one of the gifts that God gives all believers is the gift of faith. Which leads us now to our fourth, fourth point, which is that grace eliminates boasting. Rocky and Cornell and an entire army of other people helped me with my house. But because I did some of it, when people come over and say, wow, I like what you've done with the place, I'll say, well, yeah, I, I did that. I put that floorboard in. I, I definitely put in that part of the ceiling right there and all those hi-hat, that was, I did that. I can take credit because I did some of the work. But your salvation is not like that at all. Your salvation from beginning to end is carried out by the grace of God. It's much more like you are homeless, living under a bridge somewhere, and someone pulls up, invites you into their car, take you to a new home, absolutely beautiful, and then hands you the keys and says, here you go. It's much more like that. As such, you and I have no place to boast in our salvation. We have no right to boast about ourselves. We have no business seeing ourselves as superior to any other people who are lost. If God has not done this miraculous work of saving us, if it was all about us, we could boast. If we were the ones who worked our way there or were just smart enough to figure it out or who had enough power in and of ourselves, then, of course, we could boast. But because it was all of God, we cannot boast at all. If it weren't for God's work in us, we would be just like everyone else who is running in rebellion against the Lord right now. So Christians should be the most humble people in the entire world because we know that we have been given the greatest gift imaginable. And it was not given to us because we earned it. And it wasn't given to us because we were even a neutral party. It was given to us when we were still enemies of God. Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. It's like a catalog filled with heroes from the Old Testament. But it's not there in order for us to ooh and ah over these people. For those who are going through the Bible reading plan, you should know these are not good people. 
all of them made massive mistakes, and not just little blunders where they, oops, messed up. They rebelled against God and sinned in ways that you and I would look at as incredibly disturbing. Every single one of them falls far short of the glory of God. So why are these men and women here? Every single time that we read that little phrase, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, and so on. Every time we read those two little words, by faith, it should cause us to realize that their works were not done because of their own strength, but because they believed God. People always call Christianity a crutch. Yes, they were just leaning on God. The reason a crutch is necessary is because of all, all of us are crippled. We need that crutch in order to operate. And God is the one who works through us. So every single time it says, by faith, we should look at them and say, wow, God did something great in a broken, fallen individual. By the grace of God, they had faith. So for the remainder of our time today, what I would like to do is consider four ways that saving grace is worked out in the life of all believers. So for the lack of better explanation, consider this basically a timeline of what your life in Christ is all about, beginning before you were born and ending after you died. This is an exploration of grace that God is working in you from beginning to end. And we begin first with what the Bible would refer to as election or electing grace. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1. Whereas Genesis chapter 1 tells you what happened in the beginning, Ephesians chapter 1 rewinds even farther and tells you what happens before the beginning. It tells you what took place in the mind of God in eternity past before the creation story even began. And verses 3 through 6 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, that's a really dense sentence, actually, in Greek. There's a lot more in that single sentence. It is the longest sentence in the entire Bible, in the original language. And in this sentence, it's really important for us to catch a couple of quick truths regarding grace. Speaking of saved people, Paul explains that God chose us in him. And not only he tells us that this decision occurred, but he tells us when it occurred. Namely, before the foundations of the world. And he goes beyond just the what and the when, and he even tells us why this has occurred. According to these verses, the reason that God chose us according to the, was according to the purpose of his will. Meaning that his decisions were based solely on reasons only known to himself, not on anything we had done or will do. But Paul ex uh, continues and he explains that the reason God chose us was to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, this grace was sent from God in our direction long before we were born. This grace was set apart to do a specific work for us. And Paul explains that very clearly in his own testimony when he is introducing himself to the Galatian church in this way in Galatians 1, 15 through 16. He says, 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. In other words, Paul is telling these people that the grace that was given to him was determined before his birth and before he had ever heard the gospel. And the only reason it was given to him is because God chose to do so and eventually revealed his son to him. This is electing grace. But the grace of God does not stop there. It meets us in real time where we are in time and space. And we, who were enemies of God, are made right with God through what the Bible calls justification. So let's now talk for a few minutes about justifying grace. Justification is a forensic term. It is a legal term. It is referencing a declaration of innocence from guilt. And it means that the judge can look at you and determine that there is no reason to charge you with any crime. Back in October, I knew that things were going to begin getting very busy, so I had requested from my church to be able to take some time to go on a short retreat where I was going to work ahead on some of my sermon preparation, knowing that I was going to be very busy going back and forth between two congregations. And so I spent four days by myself in a cabin, quietest time I've had in years, and I prepared many sermons as much as possible ahead of time. And then I left at about 10 o'clock at night, expecting to get back at around 1 o'clock in the morning or 1.30. And I made it maybe three miles away from that little cabin in the woods before there was a siren behind me pulling me over. And then I spoke to the officer for a few moments, and I received a gift. I received a ticket. And uh, I received a ticket for going a 62 in a 55. And for those who are, like myself, struggling with math, that's seven miles over the speed limit. So when I got home and filled out the ticket, I marked guilty, but I also included a letter. I included a note to the uh, people who would be receiving this, and I mentioned the purpose of my being there, and I mentioned that I was unfamiliar with the speed limit since it's not marked anywhere in the vicinity of the cabin where I was staying, and I mentioned that I was following other vehicles that were moving faster than I was, and I even mentioned that I was traveling down a steep hill that was causing me to go very fast, also, my car has no cruise control. I mentioned all of these things, and wouldn't you know it, I got a letter back from the court. And it said, thank you for your plea of guilty. You can pay your $165 fine <laughs> at this address. In God's courtroom, you cannot stand in your own righteousness. There is nothing that you could do except plea guilty. God is not going to accept any excuses. There are no acceptable reasons that we could give that we have fallen short of God's glory. And what people attempt to do in order to imagine themselves right in standing before the Lord is they appease Him, supposedly, through the law. So they will find certain rules and they will follow them. And they will assume that because I do this thing, God must love me. But there is no code that we could follow to retroactively alter our past. You cannot bleach away your sins with church attendance or with giving or with kindness or with any other kind of penitence. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
The harshest letter that Paul ever wrote was to the Galatian church. If you want to read some biting words, read those. He attacks the heresy of these false teachers with ferocity. And the specific false doctrine that he was opposing was the belief that Jesus gets you into the kingdom, but you also have to basically gain or earn your salvation through other works. In particular, he was dealing with the work of circumcision and other Jewish practices. It was Jesus plus something. And Paul refers to that kind of teaching as nullifying the grace of God. He emphatically states in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if you could do it, then Christ died for no purpose. Anytime the Bible makes a claim like that, that this would nullify the grace so that Jesus' death was unnecessary and even foolish, then what we really have to pay attention. He says that by adding anything, we are nullifying everything. We are saved by grace alone. We need to be justified, but we cannot be justified on our own efforts or our own record. If we stand before the judge ourselves, we are going to be condemned. But thanks be to God, we have been justified, not by works done by us in righteousness, but by Jesus Christ who died to pay our penalty. Titus chapter 2, verse 7 explains it this way. It says, And being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by grace alone. The grace that God prepared for us before time meets us in real time and justifies us from our sin. And this justification was accomplished at the cross and it is applied to us the moment that we hear the gospel and believe it. And this is why we can sing those words that we so rightly declared earlier. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Himself, he, Jesus, is my plea. It is strong and perfect and irrefutable, and there is no judge in the universe that could ever say that could be thrown out of court as inadmissible evidence. Jesus died for sinners like you and like me. And if you will believe, your sins are washed away. You are justified before God. The third aspect of grace that we see in our timeline is sanctifying grace. Now I hope that you have not misunderstood me. Good works are not part of your justification. But every true Christian will gradually grow into the image of Christ. And this means that you will produce what the Bible calls good fruit, meaning the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of Christian love and the fruit of repentance. This is why we can say faith without works is dead. Genuine faith results in godly fruit. But this fruit that we produce is not grown of our own innate store of superabundant goodness. It's the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the fruit that springs forth from the Spirit. So although we certainly take part in the ongoing growth into spiritual maturity, we are ultimately carried on by the grace of God. Paul explained it to the Corinthians this way. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So do you catch what Paul is saying? He is commanding them in the whole book of 2 Corinthians to abound in every good work. But he says to them, we can only do this 
if grace abounds to us first. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, if that's the case, if God must stimulate the growth in me, then what's my job? I must not have anything to do, so I will be completely passive, and I will therefore do nothing. He has to do it, so I'll just kick my feet up, and if he wants me to grow, then he'll cause me to grow. But that is not how it works. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. There is never a time that God is not working to perfect the true believer. It is always his will and his desire and his plan to sanctify you. And he is going to do this in one of two ways. He is either going to do this by sanctifying you through disciplining the disobedient, or he is going to sanctify you by blessing the obedient. He is always working to sanctify. But the point stands that it is God who is working behind the scenes of our lives to grow us into oaks of righteousness. But I don't want you to think about this in purely abstract theological terms. This is all about real life. Sanctification is the part of the process where you are right now. For example, when Paul was suffering with some kind of an earthly trial, he notes the grace of God. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to when he speaks about the thorn in his side. Some people have argued maybe it was some false teachers that were following him around and persecuting him. Maybe it was his prison sentence. Some people argue that maybe it was his bad eyesight, which we have reason to believe existed. Or other people think maybe it was just because he had been beaten so many times and had experienced so much pain from being stoned to death that he had chronic pain that would not leave his body. And so it says that he cried out to the Lord, please take it away. This is Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived, and he is praying, God, please change my circumstances. And I do not think that this just means he prayed three times, no, God, can you please take this away? And it was gone. I think this was pleading with God on three separate occasions, please change the circumstances I'm in right now. Regardless of what the trial was, it was real, and it was painful, and about that trial, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 8-9, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God did not give Paul the answer that he wanted. When Paul requested healing, it was his heart's desire to have his body or his situation restored. And God did not answer with a resounding yes Instead, he did so with a loving and gracious no. Because God had a better purpose for Paul than Paul could see in the midst of that pain. Sanctifying grace includes the way that God sustains you in this life, including the way that he sustains you through suffering. Every one of you experienced suffering. As the old saying goes, if you haven't suffered, you just haven't lived long enough. But every one of us is experiencing suffering on various levels, all of the time. And sometimes it will feel as though that suffering is unbearable or unmanageable. Consider this guy had gone through so many things that you and I could never imagine. I have never been dragged out of a city and thrown on the ground and had people throw rocks on me until they thought I was dead. That has not happened to you either. If it had, you would have severe marks on your body, which Paul certainly did. And so Paul is saying, of all of these things, I've never asked to take that away. Take this away. It must have been something severe, or at least deeply troubling. And in this scenario, God does not take it away because God loves him. 
I know that some people in this room are suffering right now and hurting because of the loss of our, our dear sister Barbara this week. From our perspective, it was an untimely death. We use that terminology sometimes when people go to be the Lord sooner than we expect. But with God, all things are in His time. And I want you to hear the voice of God ringing loudly through the scriptures for you today. God is sanctifying you. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Which leads us into our fourth and final stop along this timeline of grace, which is the end, the final stop, the ultimate station, glorifying grace. Eventually, God will bring us out of this life and into the next, where we have no more struggle with sin. That battle of sanctification is eventually going to be over. Those desires to run away from the Lord and run into things that are wicked will never be in our hearts again. God finishes everything that he starts. And when we are saved by grace, we are justified. And we are being saved by grace through sanctification. And eventually, we are going to find our ultimate salvation in eternity when we are glorified. Consider the way that the apostles speak about salvation. Now, these are the apostles who are gathered together to talk about the Gentiles and what was going on with Gentiles getting saved. This is the first Jerusalem council that we find in Acts chapter 15. It says, when discussing these new Gentiles, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Notice that these apostles, the best Christians in the world at the time, they say... They will be saved, just as we will be saved. These apostles speaking talk about their own salvation, as it does in various other places in the New Testament, in the future tense. We will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It means that the grace that has led us this far will be the same grace that leads us home. It means that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is the message of grace. God gives us grace. Grace is opposed to works. Grace grants us faith. And grace eliminates boasting. And our salvation from beginning to end is all of grace because He elects, He justifies, He sanctifies, and He glorifies. And for that reason, He gets all the glory and Him alone. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your grace. There is never enough language to use. We don't have a large enough vocabulary to employ to say thank you for your grace. For, Lord, without you and without your grace on us, we would be running an eternal race away from you. And that we would result in nothing but judgment. But, God, we praise you that in your great mercy you have loved us and set your love and affection upon us. <clears throat> and Father, we pray for every person here who knows you, that they will be blessed and encouraged as we consider these foundational pillars of the Christian faith, so that as we move forward in, in future weeks to application and to direct focus of what this means for us, that we will be solidly in agreement and in unity about what it means that we have been saved and that we are held to you by grace. For Father God, we thank you that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. We pray that you would please help us, Lord, this week to apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.